0: This is Philip Hum, author of The Story Selling Method, Master the Art of Storytelling to Build Trust, Stand Out, and Boost Sales, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast,
1: helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Philip Hum to talk about his book, The Story Selling Method, Master the Art of Storytelling to Build Trust, Stand Out, and Boost Sales. Philip Hum is on a mission to help people discover the storyteller within each of us. He has helped thousands of sellers, leaders, and entrepreneurs around the world use stories to inspire in business and beyond. His clients include Google, Visa, and Oracle, to name drop a few. And prior to starting his storytelling business, Philip worked for nearly a decade at Uber, Bain & Company, and Blackstone. He discovered his passion for performance arts, acting, improv, and storytelling during his time in New York while completing his MBA at Columbia University, home of the Fighting Lions, His TEDx talk on the secret to building confidence was selected as an editor's pick by the Global TED Organization. And, interesting fact, according to page 18 of his book, he once received a testimonial that included, he's got a German accent that's hotter than a pretzel straight out of the oven. (laughs) Philip. Congratulations on the storytelling method, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks,
0: Douglas. Can I book you going forward to make any of my introductions?
1: Can I. yes, yes. So before we were recording, I was mentioning that I had lived in Germany. So uh, and there's a lot of listeners in Germany, but yes, please bring me on the road. All I need is a, a a bar tab and a couch to sleep on. So you're from Germany, as we've clearly established, but you lived in the United States and in South America, and the last five years in the Netherlands. So, Philip Hum, that makes you an international man of mystery, just like Austin Powers. Yeah, baby! <laughs> so, I get a lot of guest recommendations from listeners, believe it or not. Yeah, listeners, tell me which, which uh, guests I should invite on the show, and I'll see if I can get them. And I would like to thank uh, Seshu. Badranath in Connecticut. He introduced us on LinkedIn and suggested I have you on the show. And Seshu, as a marketing book podcast listener, is, you know, I think we all know what that means. He's a very good looking guy. And he's a uh, portrait photographer in Connecticut. So if there's anybody in the Connecticut area that needs a really, really good portrait, contact Seshu. And I'm going to include a link to his. Website on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. It's ConnecticutHeadshots.com. So thanks very much. Now, Philip, I was so excited to see a number of authors mentioned in the book whom I've had the honor of interviewing, including Andy Paul, Andy Crestadina, Mike Weinberg, Lee Sauls, Mark Hunter, Anthony Anarino, who I just interviewed two weeks ago, and Scott Ingram. And so it was like a a little bit of a reunion here. So I do want to mention to the listener that you have on your site, which I'll include a link to on this episode's website page, a workbook and other exclusive bonuses that go along with this. And you mentioned those throughout. So that is uh, very helpful. And I've gone through those and poked around. And to get started, I would like to read from two sections of the introduction. From page 10... You write, by the end of this book, you'll know how to use stories to leave magical first impressions, become your client's number one trusted advisor, communicate the value you're bringing to the table, overcome any sales resistance, inspire, motivate, and positively influence anyone around you. And then over to page 12, this book is for anyone who'd like to become more effective at selling a product, service, or idea. This includes sales and post-sales professionals, entrepreneurs, consultants, anyone seeking support from internal customers. Even if you don't work directly in sales, we all have to sell ourselves or our ideas in some way or another as part of our jobs. For example, we might need to get approval from another department, ask a colleague for data, or motivate our team. Storytelling is a powerful tool to pitch your ideas more effectively to gain buy-in. Your buyer may not be an external customer that buys your offering, but rather an internal customer that invests time and resources to collaborate with you. When you master the art of storytelling, you'll be able to build more trusting relationships, stand out, and boost sales. It's a wonderful skill to have, and storytelling is a skill that anyone can learn. So before we go much further, I think that we should clear up one thing, and you admit this fully in your book, Philip, storytelling is a buzzword. (laughs) So let's start by clarifying what a story is not and what a story is. I think that would be very helpful.
0: (laughs) Sure. So let's start with what a story is not, because it's being thrown around everywhere, right? Everyone says, oh, I have a story. This is a story. First, story is not a testimonial. Sure, testimonials are great, right? They are awesome to give social proof, but they're just snippets of a story. They're just one part of the story. Then second, stories, they are not case studies. I know I can speak probably for all of you listeners as well. We all have listened to or seen hundreds of different case studies. And think for yourself, right? How many do we actually remember there? Not that many, right? (laughs) These case studies are just so extremely unmemorable. Why? Because they're just very unpersonal, right? They are often about companies overall, and they just don't make this emotional connection. So they're also not case studies. Now, what are stories? Stories is at the end, something interesting that happens to a specific person not a company. That could be a challenge that happens to a specific person and some sort of development or narrative flow that happens then
1: throughout. Right. Well, normally, Philip, in these interviews, I go somewhat chronologically (laughs) because there's a good reason the author wrote it in a certain order. But there's one point I want to ask you about from the very end of the book, and then we'll get back in order here. But it's from page 147. Explain, before we go any further, why should you not use the word story when using stories?
0: <laughs> yeah. So you shouldn't use stories. Why? Because some people, not that many, but let's say some people have a negative reaction there. Um, imagine imagine we're in a meeting right now. I'm the manager and I say, all right, folks, um, before we dive in, let me just quickly share a story. Now, most people will be excited, but maybe some people, let's say 10% of the people will think, oh, really? Do we have time for that? I just want to get done. Just tell me what I have to do. They want—they think that story equals that you waste their time with a 15-minute fairy tale. Mm-hmm. That's one risk. Well, the other risk is that they think that, oh... He's trying to manipulate me here, right? He's trying to use this dirty technique right now to uh, do something with me. So some people have this reaction when it comes to story. Um, So if you're tempted to use it, I'd suggest use a different word. That could be something like an example, a case, or your experience. These three, they don't create any or cause any reaction at
1: all. Yes. There was a book on the show a few years back by Paul Smith called Sell with a Story. And uh, he hit this point really hard. And I was so delighted to see you hit it as well. It's like one of the worst things you can day, say in a sales call is, well, let me tell you a story. It's like, what's the con? Yeah, I, I agree completely. So if, 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 not many things you recall from this uh, interview, folks, remember to be careful. So let's talk about salespeople. Talk about why really successful salespeople have made storytelling a priority?
0: Successful salespeople know that they got to find something to stand out. And that doesn't only apply to salespeople, but pretty much any entrepreneur, any marketeer. Look, especially when we are in the sales conversations, we're often like, oh, we are the market leader for XYZ. We invest 10% of our uh, savings in R&D. We are... Uh, operating in 10 different markets we say all these blank facts that are interesting sure you should include them at one point but just ask yourself how memorable is that right because at the end if you look at your competitors uh, pitches or case studies well they will say exactly the same at the end we're all market leader at something so um successful salespeople, they just realize that storytelling helps them stand out. It helps them break that pattern. It helps them stand out from all the facts that anyone else is also using.
1: Yes, and it's uh, not very differentiating when they say that, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But let me jump back here. Uh, In his book, this is for all the storytelling experts who know about this book, in the book by Joseph Campbell from 1949, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He famously summarized the narrative pattern of the monomyth with 17 stages, okay? Now, I struggled with that, Philip, because like Forrest Gump...
0: I'm not a smart man.
1: And then you go on to write that when you embarked on your storytelling journey, you started off with a a nine-step story structure, but as you interviewed more sales executives, you realized the most impactful stories cover just four essential steps, and for that I thank you. <laughs> and those <laughs> those four steps are context, challenge, response, and result. Okay? So right off the bat, he's he's not trying to overwhelm us and teach us the 17 stages of the Joseph Campbell uh, monomyth. Let's let's talk about those. The context, I'd like you to talk about you know, what what that means. And I'd like to start with one specific question that you said you get asked in every single workshop, which is, does the story have to be about a person or can it be about a company?
0: <laughs> it has to be about a person. About a company, it's just not that emotional, right? Think about it. If, if I tell you right now a story about a company that is going bankrupt, that's having some difficulties, you wouldn't care, right? You're like, oh, okay, cool. But if I now tell you a, the personal fate of someone that lost their jobs and the implications of that, you would care much more, right? Mm-hmm. So always make it about a specific person. And I know sometimes we're like, ah, I don't have a specific person. Well, always pick someone within um, within the company that you're helping. Let's say you're sharing a success story. Well, then maybe it's the accounting manager of that one department, that you focus on, that uh, you helped achieve a certain result. So always make it about one specific person.
1: That's <laughs> great advice. And, you know, when I read a book like this and I see all these stories being told about a company, I just want to throw this book <laughs> at them. In fact, what I'll do is I'll just send them a link uh, <laughs> to this interview and say, gosh, please, help, go help yourself. So that's the context. That's like, you know, the when, the where, the who. And the next one is the challenge. Now, do a lot of people think that the challenges need to be like life-changing events like the challenges in, in the Star Wars movies? <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. Most people think that in order to tell a story, you have to have these big moments, these life-changing moments, <laughs> right. how you almost died in a car accident, how you climbed Mount Everest or saved a million children from hunger. Um. Obviously, that would be a cool story. Yeah, I haven't done any of these yet. Maybe I'm I'm a failure there. But
1: well, we'll see how things go this weekend.
0: (laughs) Maybe. But at the end, these moments they are not relatable. When you share a story, especially a story in business, you want to share something that your listeners can relate to, and they will be much more. Relatable. If you share an experience that anyone can experience, right? It's some minor frustration throughout the day. Maybe your boss got upset. Maybe something with a client happened. Something that other people can see themselves in. These are much more powerful for business storytelling.
1: Yeah, and frustration is a great word. You know, they're, they're being yelled at about something. There, th- I'll tell you, one of the big, biggest ones is uh, people who are going to be a judge for making the wrong purchasing decision. Uh, you know, that's that's very, very powerful. And so, but you talk about, I got the impression some folks skim over this. Why should it, the challenge be the longest uh, and, and most crucial part of the story?
0: Mm-hmm. Because that's the part where you build that emotional connection. Mm. What most people, especially in business storytelling do wrong, they just say, oh, okay, we had this problem. And then they talk about their beautiful solution and how they changed the world. <laughs> Um, well, then you're, you haven't built an emotional connection yet. The challenge is the part where you build that connection. That's when you make your listeners care. So you got to spend some time to go deep into the emotions there. Then you can only talk about your solution. and Then you will only become memorable.
1: Yeah, really steer into that. And the next one, as I mentioned, is response. Talk about why it's important to include the response. And I got the impression that do some folks just try to skip over this and go straight to the result?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's important to show the response because we want to know how you did it. If I just told you a challenge, I'm like, ah, oh, I have this problem and now it's solved. Hey, superhuman. I did it <laughs> just out of magic. Well, you'd be like, hey, what what the hell, right? How did you do that? Did you just get lucky? Or like, what did you do? Did someone else help you? They're wondering how you did it yeah. and they want to see the struggle. If you just um, solve it without working for it, it's not satisfying for us. So we want to see clearly, what you do differently? Are there any things that you did maybe a little bit out of the box, anything where you worked a little bit harder to achieve that result? So don't skip that point of uh, sharing what are the actions that you did to overcome that challenge.
1: It also seems like a section that is a preview of what that prospective customer might be facing if they they hire you, for instance. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So the result... As we've discussed, that's one that uh, everybody seems to have. Yeah, there was a twelve percent uh, rise in <laughs> productivity or whatever. But talk about the importance of of transformation uh, in, in in explaining the result, and I would guess that don't be don't be afraid of the emotional transformation that that happens for someone,
0: yeah, change or transformation is so important for storytelling. And I invite the listeners right now to think of. All Any story that they've ever consumed, whether it was in books, movies, or on podcasts, anytime you remember these stories, they have some sort of transformation in there. And that means that the character started off as one, let's say, lower status or in a bad mood or whatever that initial status was, and then by the end of the story, moved and turned into the superhero that um, was much happier, fulfilled, confident, whatever it is, right? But there was this moment of transformation, this moment of change. Mm -hmm. If the character starts at one level and ends up at the exactly same level, it's not as satisfying to the listeners. So show how the character changes either emotionally, let's say, or Gets a promotion. We want to see some degree of change in order for it to be satisfying,
1: mm-hmm. or, or like how they became better looking. Better looking, the tough one. Often <laughs> not for marketing book podcast listeners. Okay, so let's jump ahead. There's a couple other things here before we get into some of these key stories. And you you write that there are three elements that make a great story, which are surprise, emotions, and visual moments. Now. Those probably mean different things to every listener. <laughs> you know, it's like life, uh, happiness, joy. So, can you walk us through what you mean specifically by surprise, emotions, and visual moments?
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's start with surprise. Surprise. Think about um, we as listeners. If if we can predict where the story is going. we we are not going to pay attention. Mm -hmm. If you know from moment one where this is going, well, you're just going to think about, I don't know, your beach holiday, what are you going to buy in a supermarket, anything else. Surprise helps break that pattern. So what you want to have in your story, you want to have something unexpected, something that your listeners didn't see coming, something where they're like, ooh, look up and think like, oh, I better pay attention. <laughs> I don't right want now. to miss
1: anything else. I yeah. Don't, I don't
0: want, if I miss that, well, I, I'm lost here. Yeah. So you want them to almost like wake up and say, ooh, this, this is valuable stuff. That's surprise. So you want to share anything that is unusual, any unusual activity, any unusual event, anything that is a little bit, breaking the pattern of what is normal
1: and then emotions
0: emotions is um well emotions is emotions (laughs) (laughs) but you know Uh, what's
1: interesting in the book is you talk about something that just so many businesses seem to skip over and you had a harvard business school professor gerald zaltman who said that 95 he found that 95 of purchasing decisions are subconscious and there have been books on the show about (laughs) that topic and how if you don't go into the emotional aspect of things, you're actually hurting yourself in a sale.
0: Yeah, and and there I invite as well everyone to think, right? Think to the memories that you have. That could be a childhood memory. That could be anything where let's say you're like even four or five, six, 10 years old. And reflect on that memory. Why do you think you remember that? It's not because of any facts. It's not because of anything else. It's because of emotions, either positive or negative emotions. And now um <laughs> It, the same happens like, think back to, let's say a week ago, you have a meeting. Well, we forget what someone told us a week ago. Why? Because they're not sharing any emotions in that. So if you want to be remembered with your story, if you want to connect with your listeners uh, on a deeper level, you've got to bring in some emotions.
1: Yes, yes. And as, as I think back like to my time in the army… Every time they were screaming at me about something, I still remember uh, (laughs) (laughs) what it is they didn't want me doing anymore. So, oh, my goodness. Now, a visual moment. That's one that people probably are least familiar with. Explain that. Mm -hmm.
0: Visual moment is – the best stories transport the listeners into the story's world. You maybe have experienced that. When a storyteller tells a great story, it feels as if the story was happening to you. You can see all the images in front, of your, in front of your eyes as if it was happening to you. That's visual moments. Now, in business storytelling, what a lot of people do wrong is they take they talk very generic. They're like, oh, okay, then we had this problem and we did a few things to overcome the problem. They just talk very generic. They don't bring us into the specific moment. When you bring us into the specific moment, you say, okay, I stand there in front of the door. I open the door. My boss walks up to me and says, Philip, you messed up. What, what the, on earth did you do there, right? These are specific moments where you're like, "Ooh, okay, I'm with you there in the room and I can feel it. So visual moments is bringing the listeners into specific moments of the story.
1: So, surprise emotions and visual moments. Now, let's jump ahead here. I'm um, reading from page 49. You You're right. while the stories I hear in each workshop and coaching session are very different, there's one thing that 99% of the stories have in common. <laughs> Philip Hom, what is it? They are too complex. <sighs> Are people afraid that they're going to leave a detail out, or why are they complex, and what can we do to try to uh, make them more simple?
0: Okay, so um, when I looked into when I looked into the complexity, I tried to, or when I analyzed the stories, I tried to look: what do the best stories? How long are they, and what language do they use? And what I found there is that the best sales stories. They were between one and two minutes long, not longer than that. Sure, maybe if it's an incredible story, once in a while, but that's it. So, very short. And um, the second was they used the language that a fifth grader would understand. So, a very simple language. Now, in business storytelling or generally in business, for whatever reason, we think like, oh, let me, let me use extra fancy words and foreign words here to sound extremely intelligent. Oh, I'm going to speak so eloquent here. (laughs) We, we try, we pretend so hard to sound intelligent. And by doing that, our stories suffer, our stories suffer and we're less likely to connect with our audience.
1: Yes, and there was a book uh, on the show quite recently by Steve Woodruff called The Point. He goes into some great detail about why people behave that way and how counterproductive it is to do exactly the opposite of what you just described. And if you don't do that and you do it more along the lines of what you're talking about, you'd be amazed at how you'll break through. So, yeah, and there's all the jargon which you – uh, made fun of uh, in the book, which you know is big points f- uh, in my book for, <laughs> you know, uh, the, this this painful jargon. So let's talk about the. We can't cover everything, but let's talk about the the stories. There's there's five that uh, that we are, you know you describe as really being some of the most important ones, and they are. Connection stories, industry stories, success stories, differentiation stories, which I uh, mentioned earlier, and resistance stories. So let's walk through those. And I want to start on page 59 on the connection stories and ask you a question. Philip, how are you? Good. How are you? Great. Thanks. Okay, so explain to the listener the big opportunity I just lost by asking you that question and then answering it with, great, thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Now, and
0: every listener right now can think back of the last meeting that they had. Most meetings, and think of the small talk that you had, right? In these first few minutes, most of the times when like ducks in my conversation here, it's like, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Well, today uh, it's raining here in Amsterdam, pretty shitty weather, and um, yeah, nothing good. What Mm -hmm. else? (laughs) That's (laughs) it. Well, sometimes people, let's say they're a little bit more talkative. They talk about the weather. They maybe talk about traffic. They talk about COVID. They talk about these standard topics. Nothing wrong with that, right? Hey, that's cool. But with standard, you're staying on the same level of relationship. You're not building any bonus relationship, you're staying on exactly the same relationship. So what can you do differently? Instead of responding on a how are you with just good, you respond with a short connection story. A connection story is a short, relatable story about a personal experience that you've had. Um, Should I share an example?
1: Yeah, please. Because this was the one that I was the least familiar with. And I think it's a big opportunity.
0: It is a huge opportunity. Uh, to make it less awkward, just ask me quickly, how am I?
1: <laughs> okay. So, uh, hi there. How's it going?
0: <laughs> duck? it's good. Oh, well, I had a very interesting experience yesterday.
1: Actually, no, wait. Let's start over. You ask me.
0: All right, Duck. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. Well, yesterday, I had a very interesting experience. Yesterday, I went to acting class. And acting class, I like it, but it's very uncomfortable. And yesterday... The teacher, she asked me to cry for 10 minutes in front of the entire class. That was so hard because I'm a happy person. I never, I, I'm basically never sad. And so I just had to cry in front of them for like 10 minutes, crazy uh, intense. Anyway, um, what about you? When was the, let's say last uncomfortable thing you went through and how was that for you?
1: Oh, it was an interview on in the marketing book podcast a couple of weeks ago. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I should add that a lot of uh, listeners are they cry throughout most of these interviews but it's interesting now now talk about how that kind of draws me in like oh acting class or what is the effect on the person me that then learn hears this story how does that then relate back to me
0: mm-hmm. the effect is one you know know something about me you probably in a year from now you'll be like oh hey philip how's acting class going yeah and second it just builds an atmosphere of trust and where it's okay to share so the connection story it's actually interesting because it's not necessary about me sharing a story but it's much more about making you comfortable to share a story in return so sure now I talked about my acting thing but actually I'm much more interested now about your response and by sharing a story first you are much more likely to hear something about your buyer or about whoever is talking to you in much more detail than if you just ask how are you.
1: Right, right. Let me read one uh, from the book here. They say, uh, the buyer says, um, hi, how are you? And you respond with, really good, though yesterday sucked a bit. When I was young, I played lots of tennis, even at a competitive level. Yesterday, after years of not playing, I thought I'd get my racket out and hit a few balls. I've still got it, right? Man, was I wrong. It was miserable. I hit every second ball into the net. Classic case of expectations versus reality. Anyway, enough about me. How about you? Do you have a hobby you love, but you're not particularly good at? And then the buyer might say, yeah, for me, it was soccer. A couple of months back, I went to the open day at my son's school. It's, it's really brilliant. And I was not familiar with this. So I think that's uh, one of the most interesting ones. Let's talk about industry stories. I want to quote from page 67. You write, after exchanging some small talk, sellers usually try to find out what's going on with their buyer's business also known as discovery. (laughs) What problems they are struggling with, what they have tried, what they would like to change, and so on. This is great, and every seller should do this, but sometimes the discovery stage may overwhelm your buyers. They may get annoyed if you ask too many questions. They may not feel comfortable sharing their deepest pains, or they may not even be aware of their problems. To bypass any of these hurdles... You can pause your questions for a moment and ease the discovery by sharing an industry story. Tell us about industry stories.
0: <laughs> First, I want to say, Douglas, this story is for you. I feel incredibly awkward in this interview process right now. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. <Not> kidding.
1: <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? I just well, had to get that off the. Philip, my chest. just try to pick up the pieces of your shattered life and move on. You know, for the sake of the <laughs> listener. So no, tell us about industry stories because this one, you know, th- this resonated with me because I having been on the buying end of a lot of uh, purchases over the years. There's a lot of bad discovery out there. And a lot of time it resembles a um, courtroom movie where they're uh, in, you know cross-examining them and it's just I'm tired. There's this, there's this discovery fatigue out there in the selling world. Like, I don't need some – I'll give you a very mean example. Like, a 22-year-old a agency growth expert talking to me, you know, it's like, no, no, I don't uh, – no, no. <laughs> so this is one that just seems like a great way to sidestep that. Talk about that. <laughs>
0: right. And now imagine that 22-year-old agency growth owner came in and just told you, hey, look, Douglas, um, I don't want to waste your time, but I've talked to quite a few very similar companies like yours, and um, I've noticed quite a few themes or trends that is affecting them. Would it be helpful if I quickly shared that? And then you'd be like, oh, all right, cool. Hey, I want to hear that. Maybe I'm missing out something. And that's where industry stories come in. Industry stories – it's You delve there into the challenges or trends that you've observed in that buyer's industry. So you're thinking, okay, what is what could affect their business? What is affecting their business? And you share that back with that person. By sharing that, you already establish yourself as this trusted advisor because they know, hey, you're not just there wasting their time and asking some questions because of, oh, that's supposed to be a discovery. No, no, no. You're adding value. You're bringing value to the table. You're helping them see the world a little bit better.
1: Yes, and what's interesting to a a book nerd like me is that you start this chapter with a quote from Anthony Anarino, And in his book, uh, Elite Sales Strategies, as well as the one before that called Eat Their Lunch, he talks quite a bit about this. And I'll include links to both of those interviews where you, you quote him saying, You've got to provide actual value with your story. Help your client understand their environment, making sense out of the world. So, yeah, that would be very helpful. And it's uh, it, again, entire books have been talked have been written about some of this area, including the two by uh, by Anthony Anarino. It's just very, very helpful. And it's such a, as they say, uh, I guess in the psychology and the sales world, it's such a pattern interrupt. You know, where it's like, let let me just share with you what I'm finding. And everybody wants to hear about what their similar kinds of companies are, are wrestling with. And you can then probably get away with asking more discovery questions if you start with the industry story. Exactly. So I want to jump over to page 73 here. And that's about the success stories. This is where you quote Andy Crestedina saying, uh, "When you say it, it's marketing. When your customer says it, it's social proof." So you write, "We're social animals. Every time we make a decision, we ask ourselves, either consciously or subconsciously, how would someone else decide in this situation?" This is where we check the reviews on Amazon before making a purchase, or check out the Google rating before going to a restaurant. We're like, uh, "Why would I listen to my own intuition when I can blindly follow the opinion of a random person on the internet?" <laughs> True, but guilty. So the same applies to any sales conversation. Your buyer is likely thinking, how would someone else like my boss or my coworker or a competitor solve that problem? What would they do? So explain what a a success story is.
0: Mm -hmm. A success story is a real life example of how you helped a customer overcome a certain problem and help him or her achieve the desired result it's a story about a specific person that you've helped
1: ideally like let's say it's probably in the similar industry or a similar sic code uh to whom you're selling right yes ideally
0: similar industry so there you want to pick something that is relevant to the the customer so you pick someone that's ideally in a similar industry similar company size ideally similar pain point i know it's not it's not always possible to get to take all the boxes but you want to make sure that you at least take a few of them
1: now one very important point you make in that chapter is you're not the hero of the story <laughs> 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 explain why that is and uh what what you need to do instead i we've touched on it earlier but i think it's worth repeating
0: yeah yeah that's always a little bit tough right because we are all we're living we're the center of the universe, all of us. And I include myself as well there. Mm-hmm. But the story, especially the success story, you actually tell that from the perspective of the customer. You know, so you talk about the problems that that customer have, how that customer overfaced it. And your role, that's the guide. You're on the sideline. The customer is the hero. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Nancy Duarte said it uh, in her book, Resonate. She said, okay, you are not the hero. You're more the Yoda of the story. Luke Skywalker. That's the customer. So keep that in mind when you share these success stories. That you spend most of the time talking about the customer's choices, the customer's problems, and not your own. <laughs> yes,
1: and yet I see this done wrong so often, and it's almost like I'm maybe the companies don't realize they're doing it, or they they are the center of the universe, uh, or they're thinking, well, now wait a minute, we're we're paying for this. We're going to talk about ourselves, you know, like. Uh, like, like, like they're buying an ad or something. So let's jump to the one that I mentioned earlier, differentiation stories. And let's say you, I'm quoting from page 79, let's say you've had a great conversation with your buyer. You've built a connection, asked the right questions to understand their situation and shared an insightful story about a similar customer who you've worked with. It it sounds to me like this person's reading uh, the story selling method. But before before moving forward, there's one thing that the buyer needs to know. Why you? Okay, so explain first how an inexperienced seller responds to that all-consuming question. Why you?
0: Inexperienced seller, they again come up with facts, right? They're like, oh, why me? Well, we're the best ones. We are the market leader. We have massive growth curve in front of us. They bring facts. They bring statements. But again, to iterate the point from earlier on, think, is that really enough to differentiate yourself? Again, all of your competitors will say exactly the same.
1: Yeah, and don't <laughs> forget the word cutting edge.
0: Cutting edge, yes.
1: <laughs> Paradigm shifting,
0: yeah. Paradigm shifting. <laughs> we. Everyone has these buzzwords around, right? So... If you truly want to stand out, you got to share a story that shows how you're different, something that ma- that shows your unique approach, something that lets the listener feel like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to work with that person. Mm-hmm. It's just saying that you're the market leader, you're not doing that.
1: Yeah. So then how, how should it be done? Oh, and feel free to tell the Mike Weinberg story. That was really good. Should I share his story? Yeah, please. All right.
0: Um, so I'm going to share the, the story from Mike's perspective. Okay. Mike, if you're listening, I hope I'm not butchering your story. Um, but in 2018, he was hired by this mid-sized company in, in the States to, yeah, to get them more sales. And he was hired by the CEO who was this brilliant energy uh, engineer, very intelligent. He just didn't get why they were not selling more. Two weeks into the partnership, um, I had the chance to participate in one of the quarterly meetings of the company and um, even though the company wasn't generating any new sales the profits were the record high and right at that meeting the ceo said thank you guys because of you we've achieved highest profits in the company's history he then stood up went around the room and thanked every department individually he first thanked product then engineering manufacturing operations. He even thanked facilities for the meals that he were preparing that day. Do you know which department he didn't thank? It was sales. Mm. Now, after participating in a few of these meetings, I realized that the CEO, he just didn't appreciate the salespeople. He was an engineer himself, so he didn't want to give any credit to product or engineering. He wanted to give all the credit to product engineering, but not to sales. He created this anti-sales culture. Well, when I told him about the observations, um, he started to blame the vice president first. He said that, ah, it's all his fault. I tried a few things to tell him what's going on, but it wasn't successful. Six weeks into the partnership, I told the CEO, look, if you're not willing to look in the mirror, I can't work with you. If you want this training to amount to any long-term transformation, you need to change. That day, I terminated our contract look, I care about the results. When you work with me, I'll be very honest with you. There will be some things that you may not like, but if you truly, truly want to transform your team's success, well, that's something you got to be okay with.
1: <laughs> that was a great story. And it reminded me of an expression I can remember using uh, in the agency days where it's saying, look, if you've, you know, they, they want to know about the relationship. I'd say, look, if you've got broccoli on your teeth, we're going to tell you. Okay, <laughs> we're on your side here, yeah, but it was a it was a great story, and, but it's a way of it a very engaging way of explaining how it's going to be and the kind of relationship and I would think it's very helpful for Mike to uh, weed out bad fit prospects by telling that story because not everybody wants that brutal truth, they want to be able to say, well, we hired a sales consultant and we still didn't make any sales, which is funny to me because. There are a lot of uh, companies that will waste a lot of money on marketing agencies because they think, oh, well, our marketing sucks, (laughs) or or they, you know, not to take anything away from the agency folks, but it's like, just write a check. We don't have to change anything internally. Just go make some marketing, whatever that means to them. And actually, the truth is, if I can get up on my soapbox for one brief moment here, I think that a lot of companies say, oh, our marketing suck, our website's bad, so forth. Actually, most companies have a sales problem more than a marketing problem. They need need their sales fixed, maybe with a side of marketing. (laughs) (laughs) But it's easier to blame. I I have to laugh when this story from Mike Weinberg. There was probably no marketing department to blame, but he did have salespeople. So anyway.
0: I I also, I'm mindful that this is the marketing book podcast. So what else would you say, Douglas? (laughs) Right, right, right.
1: Well, anyway, um, enough about me and my, you know, ill-resolved issues. So let's talk about the last one, which is resistance stories. That's from um, page 87. and. Again, this may surprise folks. I think maybe not salespeople, but when you're, based on my experience, when you're selling and you get an objection or some resistance, that's a good thing <laughs> because it means they're actually still engaged. There's a little bit of pain there, but that means that they're engaged and they're thinking things through. So don't run away from uh, the the resistance and the objections. Talk about how to use resistance stories in in that instance which occurs you know I would say in every sale if things are going well my experience is they say no this is great this is great we've heard great things about you this is wonderful it's like that is not a good sign in my experience (laughs)
0: yeah so in these instances even before going into any story there's actually one more thing that you want to do Um, because when someone tells you oh no um we don't want to work with you because you're too expensive or whatever they say don't just leave it there but first understand the objection right what what does it mean exactly what what does it mean if they say, hey, your price is too high? Or if they say, let me think about it. Ask the question. So, hey, when you say price is too high, um, what do you mean? Or you could say, curious, why do you think that, that way? <laughs> can, can you tell me more about that? Um, and just by understanding, letting them elaborate, you actually come to the real objection. Because oftentimes, people just say, oh, well, they make up some, not make up, but they just say some reason to get out of the conversation there. But first, try to really understand what is is concerning that customer. What is that objection? What is the true objection? And once you have done that, then you want to look for a story that you could share to counter that objection. Ideally, that would be a story where about a similar customer Mm -hmm. that had a similar concern at one point but where it all turned out fine where the customer was very happy working with you and that way you just take a step back and bring again emotions into the story instead of answering with logic
1: yes and it makes them feel like it's a good question and uh, don't use the word story (laughs) but talk about others and you know in my experience it's I know this is going to upset some of the sales folks, but it's rarely about price. They just say it's about price, <laughs> and they just say, "Oh," and then they go back to the sales manager and say, "Hey, boss, we got to we got to drop the price. We are losing out on too many sales. <laughs> um, if you're losing out on price, uh, you may be uh, missing out on some of the other opportunities that you have there." So, but these were these were a great way to do it, and set, and 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 also you're not. It's not like you're sitting there uh, always be closing. You know, it's <laughs> you're, you're using the story. To help continue the conversation. So you have a chapter on how to find stories. Obviously, a salesperson going to know a lot of them. They'll have some experience, but they don't want to stop there. And you talk about one of the best sources is to interview customers. Mm-hmm. Talk more about that because that seems to be a real challenge for companies.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and I still struggle with that today. I I got to admit. What's the problem most of the times? Most of the times, let's say we give a we share a product, uh, the company uses it or a service and we just never follow up with them. We just at one point we follow up and say, "Ah, do you want another product?" <laughs> but, we never really follow up and ask with them, hey, how's it going? Uh, how are they using the product? How's it changed with them? Sure, if you're a little bit more advanced, you would do that. But I'd say, so talking to a lot of people, a lot of people don't have this systematic after the sale communication in place.
1: And a net promoter score survey doesn't count. Yeah, it's
0: this <laughs> classic. Ah, one week later, net promoter survey. Oh, awesome. He's very happy with us. <laughs>
1: oh, a enough. loyal customer, not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly and in these moments a um it's worth it to just contact them right if they're happy working with you well just drop them a quick note say hey are you up for a f- quick 50 minute call i'd just love to hear about your experience working with us and you'd be surprised but most people especially if you help them they'd be delighted to jump on that call now what happens in that call one you get lot of uh, ideas for stories, right? Because they will exactly tell you how your product has helped them or not. And yes, if it hasn't helped them, well, that's also awesome feedback, right? That allows you to iterate on the product and make a better product going forward.
1: And one of the other techniques is to interview people, uh, fellow employees, uh, particularly, I would think, customer-facing folks. And you have a bit of advice there where you say, never ask a question like, so do you have a great story I could use? Or tell me your story. Explain why that's not helpful.
0: (laughs) Um, On that one, I had a moment, I think the last house party I went to, and I introduced myself as a storytelling coach. And that person was like, all right, so tell me your story. Man, that was so awkward. That was so awkward. I'm like, dude, I have no idea how to answer here. (laughs) I have no idea how to answer it. It's such an overwhelming story. It's such an overwhelming question. And me, even as a storytelling coach, I would struggle by answering there. Most people don't see their lives as stories. They see their lives as experience, as moments. But if you just ask someone, oh, tell me a great story, they'll be completely overwhelmed.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, the comedians. Uh, Somebody else find out, oh, you do stand-up comedy or you're a comedian. They say, okay, tell me a joke. <laughs> yeah. Or make us laugh. <laughs> what the hell, right? <laughs> right. Oh my goodness! My goodness! Now you go. You go on to write that beginner storytellers often feel insecure about sharing a story in front of an audience. They may feel that their story isn't good enough, that it needs to be perfect, or that it's not the right time. So you have a chapter on how to practice your stories. Uh, a you need to practice stories. <laughs> I got the impression a lot of people don't do that, but let's start with how not to practice. Cause I, I, what should you avoid doing when practicing your stories? And I'll give you a hint. The one that really got me, don't do it in front of a mirror. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's that tip that is just around everywhere. And I keep hearing it every time. Oh, really? how, how could anyone just recommend that? It's the worst advice. If you, go, if you click on Google, hey, how to practice your presentation, it will be in every single article. And it's just terrible advice. Now, enough about the rant. Why is it terrible <laughs> advice? Um, because it's just completely unnatural to see yourself while you're speaking. When will you ever be in the situation where you share a story and at the same time you see yourself in the mirror? <laughs> never, right? Absolutely never. The only thing that you accomplish by doing that is that you're more self-conscious. You're like, hmm, what's that pimple?
1: Wow. Yeah. What's, what's that, that what's that p- broccoli that on my teeth, teeth for? Yeah.
0: Broccoli. wow. <laughs> right? You just get self-conscious. I mean, with a broccoli it's actually good if you spot that. <laughs> <I don't laughs> <get it. laughs> but overall it just makes you more self-conscious. So it's not really helpful.
1: Yeah, and then a lot of folks try to wing it, or they just try to do it in their head. So that it's just not helpful. What What are some of the things you y- you should do? I think one of them was wasn't it to record yourself? I mean, we all have a computer with a camera on it now. You just record yourself doing. It. Talk about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Record yourself is very powerful very awkward though i am i'm so mindful hey today i still find it very awkward to see myself on camera after but it's very helpful why does it help because it shows you how you're actually delivering that story so it will tell you exactly hmm, how's my pacing how's my volume how do i look <laughs> Luckily, none of the listeners see me right now. But when I look, I oftentimes look like this grumpy teenager, where I just look very angry. And so I, um, I spotted that by watching myself on camera. I thought, "Whoa, what's going on? I have to look friendlier, right?" Yeah, so smile more, smile more. Yeah, and that's the stuff that you only spot on video.
1: Right, right. And also, uh, do it with friends. You know, just practice, but do it speaking out loud. Very important. Hey, real quick, uh, tell us the story of how you prepared for a TED talk in six days.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, maybe a quick context there uh, so that the listeners know. When I thought, hey, I want to do a TED talk, I just applied to a bunch of TED organizations around the world. Uh, the day after I'd sent the application, I got a message, or no, actually, um, the guy called me. A guy called me, and I pick up. And uh, it was Mike, and he said, um, "Well, Philip, um, this is Mike from TEDx Vermont in the Netherlands. Um, I don't want to talk about fate, but we had a speaker drop. Do you? Um, do we have a spot open? Are you interested?" And I'm like, "Oh, sure. When is it?" And <laughs> he said, "I um, don't said, know.
1: Let me check my calendar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm so busy here." Yeah. He said, "Next Wednesday." I'm like, oh. What do you mean? Uh, Wednesday in six days? Yeah, I know it's a little bit tight. Are you Are you up for it? And uh, then I said, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I've been dreaming about this moments for my life. So I think I can, I can do that. And so that's why I only had six days to prepare for that TED Talk. Mm. But now to your question, how did I prepare for that? Because uh, as it was only six days, I knew that I had to prepare um, the most effective way possible. And um, they're a little bit weird, but it helped me a lot. So first I spoke my script in different voices. So I spoke at one point as if I was this English lady or as if I was this Aussie surfer boy. By the way, sorry if I'm butchering my (laughs) accents. But I tried to speak my script in different voices. That makes it more fun and more memorable. Second, I rehearsed speaking out loud while in the street. I was just walking around in even a busy street. I was just giving my speech while walking. People looked at, huh, what's that weirdo? That way you expose yourself to the judgment of others and you learn to deal with anything that is uncomfortable in that moment and the last one i did was i visualized myself doing the worst thing that could possibly happen and the worst thing that i could possibly think of that could happen was if i poop my pants on stage i thought Mm -hmm. this would be really really bad that would suck big time
1: oh it does take my word
0: (laughs) you've been there (laughs) (laughs) But what I then realized after a few of these visualizations, like, yeah, that would be pretty bad. I wouldn't enjoy that, but I think I could do that. I think I would still be fine. I could still give a great TED talk. And after doing these shitty visualizations for a few days, um, I realized that, uh, yeah, I can do that. And so, yeah, six days later, I gave my TED Talk. I I think I crushed it. <laughs> I usually don't say that that often, but I think I did really well for these six days. And these three strategies just helped me crazily prepare for that.
1: And on this episode's website page at com, and I'm going to include the TED Talk. Um, but what I really want to know is, uh, be honest, did you, for your presentation, wear adult diapers?
0: <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> It's a good one. I actually didn't even think of that. You know,
1: the idea, you know, there's no off position on the genius switch here on the Marketing Book Podcast, (laughs) uh,
0: Philip. So, Look, you're much more resourceful than I.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I I think about the things that, you know, are probably not terribly important and there's just loads of uh, really useless trivia in my head. Nothing that I should (laughs) have retained. But, you know, you talked about the judgment of others and... Like many folks, I probably have some self-limiting beliefs, just like Stuart Smalley. I'm a bad person. I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to cancel the show. I'm going to die homeless and penniless. I'm 20 pounds overweight. No one will ever love me. So you have a chapter on self-limiting beliefs. What are self-limiting beliefs? And how do they impact one's ability to tell effective stories? This was a big surprise for me.
0: Yeah. Self-limiting beliefs are so huge because most people, let's say that by this book, they usually tell themselves something. And they have been telling themselves that for years, most likely. That could be something like, very obvious, like, hey, I'm, I'm a lousy storyteller. Um, for the international audience, they would tell, tell themselves, oh, my English is not good enough. Or they say, ah, oh, my life is just not interesting enough. I don't have any stories. I'm not smart enough. I'm boring. Whatever it is, right? There are these beliefs that we've been telling ourselves, and they massively impact our ability to tell them, to tell great stories. Because if you continue with these beliefs, well, it's very hard to tell captivating stories if you don't believe in yourself.
1: Yeah. So, in the chapter, you've got how to identify them and how to how to challenge them, and it was really... Very nice story you told about one of your clients where you helped her. She was enormously successful. What was it? She was worried. She was worried about her English. I think she was, uh, English was not her first language. And it was really amazing. I, I mean, it's, it's almost like I was reading a book about therapy <laughs> 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 where you helped her kind of break through. So I think one of the most important things is for folks just to think about that. There there may be some some out there uh, that are that are holding you holding your back. So, Philip Hum, people often ask me, you know, Douglas, how have you been able to continue doing this podcast for hundreds and hundreds of episodes? And the answer is two things primarily. One is a near total lack of any (laughs) self-awareness, and two is, is no shame. I just have none. So, related to that, explain what constructive embarrassment is? I did not know about this, but of course, it spoke to me on a deeply emotional standpoint. What is constructive embarrassment and how is that helpful? Okay. (laughs) This is
0: actually my favorite topic. Oh, good. Constructive embarrassment is when you put yourself on purpose in an embarrassing situation. Mm -hmm. That could be, for example, you leave right now your apartment, uh, you see a stranger and you say, excuse me, can I give you a hug? Or you go to the next coffee shop around the corner, find yourself a cozy spot right in the middle, and you lie down on the floor, just do nothing. Or you go to the next stranger and ask if you can sing a song for them. The options are infinite. Now, why does it matter so much? Well, think about it. Why... Do we get nervous in any situation, whether sharing a story, whether giving a presentation, anytime we get nervous, it's because we worry how other people perceive us. We care so much about other people's opinion. We give just so many fucks at the end about how others perceive us. Now, by worrying so much, we cannot be present. We cannot be here and actually deliver that presentation or story in the best way possible. Constructive embarrassment helps you to learn how to deal with feelings of shame and feelings of judgment.
1: I thought it was very interesting, and you got to get comfortable doing these things. So, folks, come on. If I can do this, you know, anybody can. Well, one last question. It had to do with listening, which, of course, is probably the secret superpower of anybody trying to sell anything, particularly an idea. And you talk in Chapter 15 about Gong. Uh, they they uh, did some uh, research uh, to understand what sets the top-performing sales reps apart from other sales reps by analyzing the data of about 25,000 B2B sales conversations using artificial intelligence. And they found that the top sales reps listen 23% more than the bottom sales reps. And basically, the top reps spoke less than 50% of the time. And the poorly performing sales reps spoke 66% of the time. So there's a a correlation, obviously, between how successful you are in sales and your uh, ability to listen. And you include some techniques to help you Listen Better to Understand. And that's the chapter title, Listen to Understand. And I'd like you to talk about some of the techniques that you include in there about how to listen better to understand. And I'd like to start with a a medical condition that affects a lot of male salesmen called premature elaboration.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think we're all guilty of premature elaboration. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's really embarrassing.
0: It's really embarrassing. (laughs) Now, what is premature elaboration?
1: And that is a clinical term, I assume. It's a clinical term, yes.
0: Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what is it? It's the moment that the buyer or the other person stops talking, we just jump in. We're like, oh, cool. I have this awesome solution and I can solve your life. You just jump in the moment they stop talking. You already have whatever you have in mind. And you're just about to suggest. You're not even listening. You just want to get get over it and just jump into your conclusion or into your solution. That's premature elaboration. Mm. Now, how can you avoid that? Um, you can avoid that by just waiting for one to three seconds before you respond. Once the other person has told you something. Now, that may sound pretty easy, but it's super awkward. It's so awkward. <laughs> Give it a try next time. You yeah, it's
1: something where you got to try it a few times and you will realize it can be very helpful and very impactful.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's very helpful because it shows that you truly listen and it also gives space for the buyer or for your listener, or no, for the other person to share more uh, if they want to.
1: Mm-hmm. So just count, you know, say 1,000, 2,000 to yourself- And then there's another one, uh, ask clarifying questions. Can you tell me more about that, Philip?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Thanks. Thanks for asking. (laughs) That was a clarifying Um, question for those that are not paying attention. (laughs) Now, what's what's the problem with discovery oftentimes? It's like people have their list of questions. They're like, oh, so dark, what's your problem? Yeah, it's an interrogation. What's your goal? Mm -hmm. It's an interrogation. They just jump from one, they just take the one question to the other. That's not asking the right question that's not listening if you truly listen and someone tells you something you're like whoa fascinating right i want to hear more about that well, you shouldn't say it like that, but that's your attitude, right? You want to understand. You truly want to understand what's going on. So that's when you want to bring in some clarifying questions. So you can ask them, hey, can you tell me more about that? Can you explain that? I really want to make sure that I understood you correctly. Or ask them, hey, why do you think that is the case? By asking these questions, you get a deeper understanding of what's truly going on.
1: Oh, it seems to be so rarely done. And then another one is to paraphrase what you've heard. Again, this goes back to uh, sounding like a therapist, but it's like, um, so what I hear from you is whatever. Is that right? Or it sounds like you're saying, or you know, if I if I'm hearing you correctly, those are really really powerful, just amazing. Well, Philip, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I'd encourage today
0: someone ask you how are you, instead of responding with weather or traffic, share something personal about yourself. A short, relatable story about something interesting that has happened to you and see the magic of that. It takes your conversation on a completely different level.
1: Great advice. And what's interesting to me about that approach is you're really throwing the ball to them to see if they can they can run with it. And uh, it's very interesting. I, as, as I mentioned earlier, it was one of the more surprising things in your book. So, is there something a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book, or if if not, what you just suggested?
0: What I suggest, and that together with just sitting down every day and finding these moments, it's most people, they struggle because they, they don't think they have any stories. All of you, all of the listeners have incredible stories. It's only about spotting them. So just sit down every day for maybe a minute and think, ask for yourself what is this one moment today that stood out, this one moment that touched my heart? Once you've identified that moment, just note it down. And these are the moments, either the stories that you are going to share in your conversations.
1: And what we didn't talk about, but in the book, you talk about very specific transitions that you can use to start the story. Again, don't say the word story, but it's like, that reminds me of xyz that that type of thing is very very specific. <laughs> so Philip looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career?
0: I guess for me um when it came to writing this book, there's one book that changed my mind about writing a book that is called Write Useful Books. Before that book, I thought always I would
1: never write a book in my life. After that book, I just wrote it and it felt pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> write Useful Books? Yes. I'm looking it up here. Rob Fitzpatrick? Yes. Uh Oh. Write Useful Books, A Modern Approach to Designing and Refining Recommendable Nonfiction. Wow. Interesting. I appreciate you mentioning that. Anything else?
0: One book that I love or one author that I love is Alex Hormozzi, right? Most people know him. He's pretty famous right now. But I love one because, yeah, his nuggets are just extremely helpful on marketing and on sales, but also his writing style is just an inspiration for me. Just an inspiration to cut all the fluff and just see how can I write the most pragmatic, actionable book on this earth.
1: Oh, say the the author's name again. Alex Hormozzi. Well, I was one that didn't know about it, but now I do. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned and your website and your LinkedIn profile. And now, listener, please do me a big favor and reach out to uh, Philip in some way to thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, putting up with my foolishness. I know there's a lot of listeners in Germany and the Netherlands and South America. Come on, folks. He's one of you all. So send him a message and let him know he you know he, that you heard the interview and that you appreciate it. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because they're ridiculously good-looking people, Philip. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all of these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 172, don't wait for your stories to be perfect. The book is The Story Selling Method, Master the Art of Storytelling to Build Trust, Stand Out, and Boost Sales. The author is Philip Hum. Philip, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Doc.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.